Thank you for stopping by the Cypress Church Podcast. We are a church community who seek to worship Jesus, love one another, and serve the world. We hope you'll come away from this podcast with your hearts refreshed from hearing the Word of God proclaimed. Well, it's been said that the most powerful force on the planet is the Amazon River. In terms of volume of water, it's the largest river in the world. You can see it on the screen there. While it can look peaceful, it moves 230,000 tons of water per second. It's so powerful, in fact, that it pushes its brown fresh water out into the blue salt water of the Atlantic Ocean 100 miles. That is power. But there's a power that is far greater in this world than the Amazon River, the most powerful force on the planet. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. It was the Holy Spirit who, after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrected Jesus from the dead. And it's the Holy Spirit who is able to soften the hardest of human hearts to believe in Jesus and be saved. That is real power. We are studying the New Testament book of Acts right now. Acts is all about the Holy Spirit, learning to experience the Holy Spirit more. And this morning we're going to see four irrepressible signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in a church. Four irrepressible signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in a church. Just like the unstoppable force of the Amazon River, when the Holy Spirit is flowing through a congregation, four things rise to the surface. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd open them with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 on page 1,161 of the Black Bibles in the pew in front of you. Page 1,161, Acts chapter 5. And as we read through and notice these four irrepressible signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, let me just say this right up front. I see these four irrepressible signs evidenced in our congregation even now. So with that, let's look at the first sign. When the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, people become acutely aware that, number one, the Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. Let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. When the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, people become acutely aware that the Holy Spirit is holy. And this gives an unusual sensitivity to the church about the seriousness of sin. And this story is one of those stories in the Bible that can really disturb your spirit. It causes all sorts of questions to erupt in your soul. Why was it wrong for Ananias and Sapphira to keep some of the money for themselves? Why does Peter seem so callous? Why was the punishment so severe? They lied. Did they have to die? These are the kinds of questions that come up in our spirit when we read a story like this, are they not? But why do we do that? Why do we immediately point the finger at God and blame him and put him on trial? Maybe we're missing something about who God is that he's trying to reveal to us, but as soon as we shut him down for being a callous, uncaring, wrathful God, we miss the whole point of the story. You see, here in this passage, Ananias and Sapphira clearly sinned. It says right there in verse 3, you lied to the Holy Spirit. They sold a piece of land, and unlike Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, unlike Barnabas who brought the whole proceeds, everything he sold, this piece of land, he brought all the proceeds, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land and they said they brought all of the proceeds, but they only brought some of it. They wanted the acclaim of everybody for giving all of it without actually making the sacrifice. They lied to the Holy Spirit. But they didn't just lie in verse 8 when Peter confronts Sapphira, she doubles down. Did you sell, was this the whole selling price? And she says, yes. Yes, it was the whole thing. So not only did they lie, but they doubled down on their lie in unrepentant, willful sin. So this was sin, and we know from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And here we see a very stark example of that. But does that explain the severity of what just happened? They lied and then they died. That seems a little over the top to our sensitivities. But what I want you to realize right here, and maybe you write a note in the side of the column of your Bible, 
is this is the first recorded sin in the newly formed church. That's significant. It's significant because there is a pattern all through Scripture when God begins doing a new thing, the very first sin that emerges among his people during this new thing is severely dealt with so that God's people remember that sin has serious consequences and God is holy. And here it's underscored that the Holy Spirit, whose name has holy in it, that the Holy Spirit himself is holy. You'll see this pattern called the principle of precedence, this idea that the first sin in a newly f- new movement of God is severely dealt with so that everyone else in God's people re- is reminded of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. We see this exact replica in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7. When God's people first come into the promised land and they're fighting battles, a man named Achan kept back some of the war spoils for himself. All the war spoils were supposed to be dedicated to God. Achan kept some of them for himself. And his sin was exposed and he fell down and died. That was Joshua chapter 7. He was, his was the first sin in the promised land. This is Acts chapter 5. This was the first sin. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was the first sin in the newly formed church. Both, in both instances, they fall down and they die. That's because this first sin was a precedent. Do not forget that when God begins a new movement, sin is still serious. And God is still holy. When the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, people become unusually sensitive to the seriousness of sin. And I see that happening here at Cyprus. I'm not going to go into any detail, but if I, if I could just tell you, since, us be, since we began studying the book of Acts, over the last month, I've had men and women call me and come to see me and confess deep-seated sin that has been keeping them in condemnation and guilt for years. Secret stuff that they've told nobody about. It's all coming to the surface. And this is unusual. I've been in ministry for 25 years now. And it's not unusual for people to come and confess sin, but the volume, the regularity over the last month, it has been unusual. And here's the, here's the situation. These people who are coming and confessing these deep things, these things that have been holding them down in guilt and suppressing them with condemnation, they're getting free because they're confessing their sin to God. They're receiving his forgiveness. They're being released into freedom that they didn't even know was possible because they've been living so long in the darkness and oppression of their sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a great promise to remember. But let us not forget, as we ask the Holy Spirit to do a new work in us individually and in our church collectively, 
Sin is serious. And what we see here in Acts chapter 5, this wasn't just a lie, this was a double down on lie. Peter just didn't confront the lie. The reason he confronted the lie was to see if they would actually begin to tell the truth, that they would confess their sin and seek forgiveness. They didn't. They doubled down on their lie. Boom, they dropped dead, and everyone heard about it. And and it says that twice, it says that there was great fear that filtered through the whole church. Everybody who heard about it, they learned the seriousness of sin, and they were reminded of the holiness of God, and particularly the holiness of the Holy Spirit. Those two lessons will never change, and they are particularly evident in a new movement of God. So is there any unconfessed, deep-seated sin that you've been keeping a secret You need to confess that to God. You need to receive his forgiveness. You need to allow him to cleanse you of that and empower you to be released from that so you can live this new life for Jesus. Billy Graham said these words. You'll see them up on the screen. Only when we understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our sin. Only when we understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our sin. This leads us to the second sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, and that is that people have the attitude that Jesus is worth any cost. Jesus is worth any cost. Look with me at verses 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. These are the things that have been happening. We've been reading about these things in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 4. And the curious reference to Peter's shadow here is merely, what it is, is it's evidence that people were expressing amazing faith in Jesus. They weren't just expressing mustard seed-sized faith, they were expressing the kind of faith that amazed Jesus when he was on the earth. We see that Jesus was amazed by faith, and the fact that Jesus is amazed by anything in this world is quite amazing, but the fact that he's amazed by faith is amazing. We see that in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. But the thing that should really stand out to you about these verses is the seeming contradiction in verse 13 and verse 14. How could it be that none dared to join them in verse 13, but in verse 14, more believers than ever were added to their number? Multitudes, we're told. How can both of those things be true? None dared join them. But thousands of people believed and were were added to their number. How can those two things be true? 
And the resolution of that seeming contradiction lies in the fact that people were counting the cost of discipleship. They didn't just sign up and and sign on the dotted line immediately, easily, without thought, lightly. They actually heard the message in the temple with the religious leaders who had already begun persecuting the church in chapter 4. So there was a cost. And now they had heard of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. And so there was a lot to think about. And no one believed easily in the early church. They counted the cost. So while none of them joined them initially, after counting the cost, thousands of people believed in Jesus and began following him because they did a cost-benefit analysis. They weighed up the cost. They looked at the cost and they said, well, what I've seen so far is two months ago, about two months ago, they crucified Jesus. That was pretty severe. And if I follow Jesus, should I expect any less? Probably not. Because what I've seen just recently is that his apostles were arrested and jailed and interrogated and threatened And so we're going down the same road here. So I've got that to think about. And then I've got Ananias and Sapphira to think about. God dealt severely with their sin. So there's persecution from outside the church bearing down on the church. And now there's sin coming out, erupting from within the church that is being dealt with severely as well. There was a lot to think about. So the cost, potential cost, seems high. But for thousands of people... In this day, that was not enough to keep them from all the benefits of knowing Jesus. I can receive forgiveness for my sins? Well, let's just leave it there. Is is that not eternally amazing? The benefits of forgiveness? But then there's eternal life. I get to be with Jesus in the kingdom of God for all of eternity? That's amazing. And then he gives me the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower a whole new life, a life of of, of following Jesus now, a life of empowerment by the Holy Spirit, a life of freedom from sin and condemnation and guilt, a life of joy and love and hope. And so for all these people, when, when the Holy Spirit was at work in this early church, people were willing to pay the price People counted Jesus so far and away above worthy that the costs were amazingly small in comparison to the incredible benefits of knowing Jesus. Now, you know that when we baptize people here at Cyprus, we ask them a really full-on question. It's, It's a cost of discipleship moment at baptism. Because we ask each person who's baptized here at Cyprus, and are you committed to following Jesus no matter what the cost, without conditions or excuses for the rest of your life? And last year, this is very clear in my mind in the last couple of weeks, because last year I baptized a young man right here, and I asked him that question, and he said yes. Yes, I'm committed to following Jesus, no matter what the cost, without conditions and excuses for the rest of my life. 
He said yes. And now he's in his freshman year at a local junior college. And he's got a professor who's teaching him about world religions. And he's bringing down, he's kind of, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, the word just left me. But he's kind of dissolving, seeking to dissolve faith in Christianity. He's saying that there's no evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, among other things. And this young guy who said, yes, I'm willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, without conditions, there are excuses for the rest of my life. This young guy said, excuse me, sir, there's actually more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth than any other ancient historical event. Where did he hear that? And so then he came and met with me and we had lunch together and he goes, what other resources do you have to bolster? You know, it's really easy to say that, but now I actually have to put some evidence down and, and, and show him. And so we had lunch together and I got him a book that I thought was really helpful and now he's off reading that and, and digging into this whole thing. That is a young man who understands this principle. That's a young man who is understanding what it means to have the Holy Spirit help him grasp that Jesus is worth any cost. Because is that going to cost him anything to say such things in his class? Maybe. It might cost him a lot. But does the cost outweigh the benefit in his mind? Not at all. The cost of knowing Jesus, of representing Jesus, of being a witness for Jesus, so far outweighs the cost for this young man that the cost-benefit analysis is almost insignificant in his mind. And that's what we see here with these believers. They're being confronted with all of the persecution and the severity of sin's punishment right in front of them, and they've got to decide, are, they, are we going to follow Jesus? And thousands of them are following Jesus once they've counted the cost. Initially, they don't join, but once they've counted the cost and they've thought through the cost-benefit analysis, they're signing up, and they're saying, we're in, 100%. And they're believing and being baptized and starting to follow Jesus. Just an interesting note, at the height of Jesus' ministry, we're told that there was 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not including women and children. In Acts chapter 4, we're told a very similar number. We're told that number. We're told that there was 5,000 people in the church, not including women and children. Here, in Acts chapter 5, so there's 5,000 that's the number. Here, we're told that more than ever, believers were added to the, to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So now, at the height of Jesus' ministry, there was 5,000 people following him. In Acts chapter 4, there's 5,000 people following him. But in Acts chapter 5, there is multitudes more. Jesus' disciple-making ministry, investing his whole life in 12 men, is beginning to bear fruit that is eclipsing the fruit that he bore when he was on the earth. Maybe Jesus knew, something, knew what he was doing when he invested his time in 12 ordinary men. Because here we start seeing the great things that his apostles who'd been trained up and counted the cost of following him are actually doing themselves. That brings us to a third sign. When the Holy Spirit is at work in the church, obedience isn't optional. When the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, obedience isn't 
optional. Look at verses 17 through 33. This is an intense passage. I just invite you to pay close attention to what happens here. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked in the, in the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came in and told them, look, the men who were put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet you, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The religious leaders had ordered the apostles not to speak to anyone, anywhere, about Jesus. The angel of the Lord, and when they did, they were arrested and thrown in prison. Not just Peter and John, as in chapter 4, but now all 12 of them were in prison for preaching the name of Jesus to the crowds. But an angel of the Lord comes to them and tells them to do exactly the opposite. Did you notice that? Go into the temple. Where are all the religious leaders? They're hanging out in the temple. Where are all the crowds? They're hanging out in the temple. Go to the temple and continue to proclaim Jesus' kingdom gospel. Do not stop talking about Jesus to anyone. Speak to everyone everywhere about Jesus. And so should we listen to the religious leaders or do we obey God? It wasn't even a choice in their minds. Obedience wasn't optional for them. They were going to obey God no matter what the price tag was for them it wasn't an even an option for them to even think about. Just read through that passage again, read through chapter 4 again, and see if Peter or John or any of the other apostles are even having a thought to listening to the religious leaders. 
even though they're being arrested, thrown in jail, interrogated, threatened, now these guys want to kill them. They're so enraged, it says. Even then, not even a thought to listen to what they say. No, we're going to continue to proclaim the Jesus kingdom gospel with boldness, with everything we've got. Are we supposed to listen to you or God? Obviously, we're going to listen to God, was the response. In verse 32, Peter says something that I think is really worth not only noting, but really reflecting on. It's a, it's a very key, fundamental lesson about the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives. In verse 32, he says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When do you begin experiencing the Holy Spirit, his power? Is it before you take that step of obedience or as you take that step of obedience? Because it seems to me that a lot of people wait until they feel empowered by the Holy Spirit before they actually obey Jesus. But that's not what this says. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit empowers those who obey Jesus. So there's this powerful moment. So if I'm sitting in my chair at home and I'm waiting, and God's told me very clearly something to do, and I'm waiting for, for the Holy Spirit to empower me to do that thing, I might not ever feel empowered to do that thing, which means I might not ever obey Christ. But as soon as I get up out of my chair and take a step of faith and obedience towards doing that thing, that is when I begin experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And how powerful is the Holy Spirit, lest we forget? More powerful than the Amazon River, the most powerful force in the world. Romans 8, chapter Chapter 8, verse 11, Romans 8, verse 11, says, If the Spirit of God dwells in you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Whoo! That is a lot of power dwelling in you if you truly believe that verse. If we would just take that step of obedient faith, we would experience this outpouring, all the power we are ever going to need to be obedient to Jesus. If we don't take that step of faith, is the Holy Spirit going to meet us in obedience? Dallas Willard says something remarkably similar to verse 32, which I have found very helpful in my Christian life. He said this, he said, the Holy Spirit meets us in obedience. The Holy Spirit meets us in obedience. So now, as Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, why do I sin? Is it because I don't have the power through the Holy Spirit to be obedient? No. I mean, yes. 
I have all the power I need to be obedient to Jesus, so why do I still sin? Because I want to. That's the answer. Because the fault isn't God's fault that I'm sinning. He's given me all the power I need to walk in obedience. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11 tells me. The reason I still sin is because I cherish my sin over valuing Jesus. And that tells me the strength and the deceptive nature of sin, that I have to take it seriously. If I take sin lightly, it'll kill me. It'll deaden my soul. It'll deaden my relationships with other people. It could actually kill me, my sin. And until I understand the seriousness of my sin and that I've got all the power that I'm ever going to need and more to overcome my sinful, disobedient desires through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm never going to understand truly how the Christian life works because I'm going to try and work out this Christian life in my own strength. I'm going to know that I've got the indwelling Holy Spirit in me, but then I'm going to try really, really hard in my own strength, by my own willpower, to make this work. And I'm going to become discouraged and disillusioned and depressed. And guess what that leads to? More sin. But now I think I know Jesus. Now I think I'm walking in the power of the Spirit because I've got this Holy Spirit in me but I'm not walking in obedience. And as soon as I take that first step towards obedience, God starts filling me with the power of the Holy Spirit. Then I take another step, more power. Another step, overcoming. Another step, whole new pathway of life opening up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all these amazing fruits of the Holy Spirit. I begin experiencing them as I take a step of obedience which comes by faith. So don't wait to feel empowered. Take that step of obedience. When you know what God is calling you to do, do it. And begin experiencing the Holy Spirit because we meet the Holy Spirit in obedience. What does verse 32 say? The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. Who obey him. Obedience isn't optional in a church that is experiencing the Holy Spirit because when it comes to obeying my flesh or obeying a man or a woman, it's no comparison. I've got to obey God. There's not even a thought that I wouldn't obey God because God's voice is so clear and I want to walk with him and be loved by him and pursue him with everything I've got. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 5. And that brings us to the fourth and final sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, which is that people realize, number four, the gospel is uncontainable. The gospel is uncontainable. Look at verses 34 through the end of the chapter. So right on the heels of these guys being enraged and wanting to kill him, seething, spitting at these apostles, then a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Good move. And he said to the men, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. 
For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him and he perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and those and let them alone. For if this plan... For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Using the Gamaliel principle, how's Christianity doing? Has it failed? Has it petered out? You can kill Jesus, but did you kill all of his followers? No way. These guys have continued to multiply through generations over 2,000 years. Christianity is stronger now throughout the world than ever before. Using the Gamaliel principle, is, is Christianity of men or of God? You'd have to say it's of God. But what I want you to see is the apostles understood that the gospel was uncontainable, that it was unstoppable, that it was irrepressible, that it was unbelievably free. Even when you tried to imprison the apostles for preaching the gospel, still the gospel seemed to spread even faster throughout the city of Jerusalem and beyond. So the religious leaders, they didn't quite take all of Gamaliel's advice. Gamaliel said, don't, hey, don't even lay a hand on them. These guys beat the apostles severely before letting them go. So just take a note, the persecution's raised to a whole new level now. Now it's not just imprisonment. Now it's not just interrogation. Now it's not just threats. Now the beatings have begun. I don't know if you've ever been beaten before, but it takes days to get over a severe beating. But battered and bruised, how do these guys leave the temple? They're stoked. They're rejoicing. They're beyond rejoicing. They're actually feeling honored for dis being dishonored because of Jesus. They feel like this is a great thing. And right on the heels of the threat, do not speak to anyone anywhere about Jesus, these guys, what does it say? Verse 42, they went to the temple and from house to house and they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Man, talk about the Amazon, an Amazonian river type unstoppable force. Something is at work in these guys' lives that is irrepressible. They understand the seriousness of sin they're recognizing the holiness of the Holy Spirit. They have counted the cost and counted Jesus as worthy of anything that they might have to pay. 
Obedience isn't optional for them. They're going to continue to speak the name of Jesus boldly, come what may. These are the kinds of things that, are, that a church experiences when the Holy Spirit is at work in it. These, these are the kinds of things that come to the service in a congregation that is truly experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And these are the kinds of things that are beginning to happen here. That's why our language needs to change. We need to move from praying for revival to come to recognizing that it is happening right now and starting to give thanks for it and begging God, travailing in prayer for God to pour out more because people are confessing sin and getting free through forgiveness of sin here. People have counted the cost and continue to count the cost and seeing Jesus as worthy of whatever price they have to pay for following Jesus. People more and more are understanding that obedience is not optional. And it's when I begin to take that step of faith in Jesus, that step of obedience, it's then that there's this infusion, this unstoppable, irrepressible resurrection power experience of the Holy Spirit that comes into my life. And it's then that we begin to see that, man, our prayer that Monterey County would come off that, that top 20 most unchurched cities in America list, that the gospel would go out into every dark corner into this county, that people would be rescued from homelessness and human trafficking and pornography and all these different things that just enslave us there is all sorts of power that can be unleashed and it begins with the church. It begins when the church says, you know what? I am all in. I'm surrendering everything. I'm believing that the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, lives in me. I have all the power that I need to be obedient to Jesus. So obedience is not going to be optional anymore. Lord, what do you want me to do? Make it really clear, the next step. And I will take that step by faith, not in my own strength, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. When all of us are asking for that to begin happening and trusting that the power is there through the Holy Spirit, look out. And you want to know what is going to open up the floodgates for that to happen? It's the same thing that opened up the floodgates here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, they travailed in prayer. If you're asking me, what do, you, what do you think we need to do as a church at this season of our life? I think we need to come together and pray. And this Wednesday from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. right here in the sanctuary, we're going to pray. And if this was the early church, they would, there would be no conditions there'd be no excuses well that's when I usually watch the news and catch up on the date no I'm there well I've got this thing that I've got to do no I'm there I'm going to pray I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast if you come this Wednesday there's these 40 days of prayer sheets in the foyer today it's got 40 days beginning Wednesday for 40 days from this Wednesday all the way through Easter Sunday prayer ideas for you to pray. And every Wednesday, there's six Wednesdays over these 40 days, beginning this Wednesday, we're going to meet in here. Man, I would encourage you to come. And there's going to be no lights 
Well, the, the lights are going to be on, but there's no smoke machines, there's no band, there's no music. Guess what we get? When we come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, guess what there's going to be? We're going to read a, pass, we're going to read a chapter of Acts, and then we're going to pray for an hour. No frills, no lights, no cameras, no action, except for prayer. And then... And then, and only then, will we discover how powerful prayer really is, that it's what opens up the floodgates for the Holy Spirit to fill us as a church, a whole church. And we can't do that if we're not here together. When we're together, stuff happens than when we're all individually at home, in our homes, locked away, you know, sitting on our couches, watching whatever, probably the news. Give up your TV for the night and come and pray. And I promise you, it will not, it'll be totally worth your while. Because over these 40 days, I truly believe God is going to do something in us as a church and everyone who's here to pray will experience it. And there should be no, no more important thing than this right now. If we truly recognize that prayer opens up the floodgates for the work of the Holy Spirit, then let's come and pray. And if you've never tried fasting before, try it with me this year. Last year we started doing this and we called it a soft fast. We didn't eat breakfast, we didn't eat lunch, and we had dinner after the prayer meeting. You will discover stuff about yourself if you give up breakfast and lunch and eat dinner after a prayer meeting that you will not discover about yourself any other way you'll discover how much you think you need all these different things. And after a few times of doing it, you realize, I don't need that stuff. What I need is more of God. What I need is more of Jesus. What I need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I need. But I've so conditioned my mind to eat food every like two and a half hours that I think I need that. I don't need that. Man does not live on bread alone. How are you going to ever learn the truth of that statement if you always are eating bread? (laughs) Give up bread for the day. Wednesday, this Wednesday, begin fasting. I want to check, you show me one place in the scriptures or down through church history where a revival has broken out without prayer and fasting. I challenge you, you will not find it. So if we truly want to experience the Holy Spirit more, if we really are asking for revival and it's already begun, church, let's take advantage of this season of the 40 days of prayer and open, ask God to open up the floodgates even more with the kind of ferocity of the Amazon River, that unstoppable, irrepressible power that pushes water out of the river into the, Pacific, into the Atlantic Ocean 100 miles, recognizing that the power of the resurrection is so much more powerful than even that. That's the kind of power that we're going to begin experiencing if we come together and simply pray. Will you come with me and pray this Wednesday? No frills, just prayer. And it's like that for a particular reason, so that we'll discover how powerful prayer really is how much we truly need Jesus, how we're really not in control, how serious sin really is, how holy God really is.
how the scriptures are really true. I hope you'll join me this Wednesday. I hope you'll lay aside everything else and come to pray. Let's pray. Lord, I want to give you thanks for beginning to work at Cyprus. You've always been working at Cyprus. You've always been working down through our 47-year history. You've been at work. People have been coming to know you. But we're starting to see you working in new ways, in unusual ways, at a rate that is more than usual, in volumes that are different from normal. And we want to say thank you. And we want to beg you to open up the floodgates even more. That we would experience these same things that we're reading about in the book of Acts. That obedience isn't optional. That we would have an unusual sensitivity to the seriousness of sin so that we might confess it and be freed from it. And that we'd begin experiencing the uncontainable, irrepressible power of the Holy Spirit unto obedience in our lives. It's already happening. Lord, would you do it more? We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. And Lord, I just pray that you would call us together to pray and to fast as a congregation this Wednesday. In Jesus' mighty name, all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen, church. Well, I don't know about you, but as we seek to experience the Holy Spirit more this year at Cyprus, one of the things for me from Pastor Ben's sermon today is uh, that stuck out to me is the holiness of God versus the holiness of his people, that he calls us to be holy like he is holy and how um, our prayers are deeply affected by the holiness of our life. Um, so just, just a reminder to you there, something that stuck out to me today. Uh, we're going to sing one more song here in just one more, uh, just a moment. But before we do, I want to share just a couple things with you briefly uh, that will help you to connect with God and others here at Cyprus. Uh, the first one, Ben's mentioned it a couple times there, the worship, uh, excuse me, not the worship night, the 40 days of prayer. Last Wednesday, we had our worship night that kind of kicked off the 40 days of prayer theme. And so uh, this Wednesday here, 6.30 p.m., we'll be gathering together to pray. You've heard lots about that, but I just want to encourage you again uh, to be here this Wednesday. The second one, uh, we have a, a variety of uh, mission trips that are going on this year. One of them is uh, our family Mexico mission trip. And it's called that because we want to make sure everybody knows that we want families to be a part of this one uh, this year. I'm bringing my family. We have a couple other families that are going down, uh, but it's not family exclusive uh, or specifically. So if you want to come, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to get a little bit of information out to you. And next Sunday after the service, we're going to have a little bit of info on it. We're going back to Rancho de los Niños. I'd love to tell you more about it next Sunday at a little luncheon after the service. And the final one is daylight savings time is next Saturday slash Sunday. So be prepared, be ready. Uh, don't show up to church late or early. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, get your clocks ready and be, uh, be ready for uh, daylight savings next Sunday. And another simple step you can take right away is to stay after the service when we have coffee and donuts here in the fellowship hall and meet some new people. We have a meet someone new challenge in our weekly, so we encourage you to don't be shy and share some talk with our fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ. Um, also, if this is your first time here at Cyprus, we'd encourage you to fill out a connection card that's located in the pew in front of you and drop it off in the offering, pl- offering plate or either in the welcome center in the lobby. And then finally, one act of response to preaching of God's word is taking the offering. So I'll ask the ushers to please come forward 
to receive this morning's offering. And as the offering is being, plas- being passed, would you join us in our last song? stood before creation eternity in your hand you spoke the earth into motion my soul now to stand you stood before my failure My sin weighed upon your shoulders, my soul now to stand. So what can I say? And what can I do? But offer this heart of
Would you receive this benediction? Go from here now as witnesses of what you have seen and heard. Share God's love with those you meet. Bring hope to those who are in despair. Live lives of gratitude and praise. And may the love of God, the peace of Jesus Christ, and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit be within you and among you until we see each other again. Amen. I just want to welcome you to go and see um, right outside as you leave and and, uh, enter the lobby. You'll see your piece of art that you did. If you were here on Wednesday, you'll see it out in the lobby. So please go in peace. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information about our community, please visit cypresschurch.org. And as always, we would love to see you every Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. Have a blessed week.